Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Well, good morning, and a blessed Advent and a Merry Christmas to you. I know that this doesn't seem half as strange for you as it does for me. I have uh, gotten a positive COVID diagnosis this last week. I'm fine, I feel okay, a little bit exhausted, and uh, my voice is a little sore. Maybe you'll catch that today in the sermon. But I am uh, recording on Saturday afternoon in an empty sanctuary and uh, hoping and trusting that this finds you well. By my count, we've spent the last 13 weeks, the last 13 Sundays or so, studying the book of Philippians together. And it's been great to dive into a book of Scripture, to immerse ourselves in it for months, hasn't it? And so as we enter the second Sunday in Advent, we're, we're shifting our gears a little bit. We're going to be looking at some Old Testament texts that point forward to the Messiah to come. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah and the four so-called servant songs within the book of Isaiah. And if you take a look at your bulletin outline, you'll see those listed out there. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then probably most famously Isaiah 52 and 53. Uh, Chapters 52 and 53 contain verses like uh, he was uh, pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, by his wounds we were healed, uh, those sorts of verses. And those verses uh, bring to mind images of Good Friday and of the crucifixion and later resurrection of Jesus. And so this Advent, as we look back on Christ's first coming and we look forward to his second coming, his second Advent, we're going to be looking at these four servant songs found in Isaiah. And in each one of these songs, the Lord God, through the prophet Isaiah, is describing his servant and the service, the suffering, and the glorification that his servant will go through. In academic circles, there's a, there's a lot of debate as to about the identity of the servant, um, something we're going to study a little bit later. But I think it's actually pretty easy to ascertain who the servant is. This morning, let's look at Isaiah chapter 42, the servant, his identity, his commission, and what the Lord has commanded him. If you haven't found Isaiah 42 in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to do that. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. And again, if you haven't uh, stood yet for the reading of God's word, I would invite you to do that at this time. Reading in Jesus' name, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth 
and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I give my glory to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the fact that you have prophesied beforehand to Isaiah uh, what your servant would look like, who he would be when he came. And thank you that now, 2,000 years or so after he has come, we can look at your word, look at what Isaiah prophesied, and look uh, into the New Testament and see how Jesus fulfilled that perfectly. Lord, we pray that you would take these verses, that you would apply them to our lives, and that we would grow close to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So who is the servant? What is his identity? Scholars, especially liberal scholars who do not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, are all over the map on this one, trying to uncover almost a secret identity of the servant of the Lord. And it seems there are as many ideas as to who the servant is as there are Isaiah scholars. One possible offering for the identity of the servant is that of the nation of Israel and Judah, and therefore the individuals within Israel and Judah. And as God's chosen people, they are the the logical candidates for being his servant. And in fact, in Isaiah, they they are even described as the servant of the Lord. Uh, Listen to these verses from chapter uh, 41, just one chapter before the servant's song. Uh, They describe the Lord God calling and setting apart the nation of Israel from all other nations of the earth. And then we get to verses 8 and 9. And the Lord says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, uh, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So it's an open and shut case, right? The servant of the Lord that Isaiah sings about in these four servant songs are the the people of Israel, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And, And in one sense, yes, Israel was the servant of the Lord. Out of all the nations of the earth, the Lord chose the Israelites through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the rest, right, to be his people. It was with the Israelites that God said he would share his law and his covenants. As his chosen people, Israel was supposed to reflect his love and justice, and most importantly, they were the people through whom he would send the Messiah, the Savior, into the world. But yet Israel failed at their tasks. They did not reflect the love and the justice of the Lord to the world. They did not share his law and the promise of a coming Messiah with the world. 
Instead of being a light to the nations around them, they followed other lights, the the gods of their neighboring nations and their idols. Time and time again, Israel was unfaithful to the Lord. So unfaithful, in fact, that the prophet Ezekiel uh, would compare Israel and Judah to a bride who, on her wedding night, on her wedding night nonetheless, was unfaithful to her husband. And even the Lord God would, would convey his frustration with Israel, with his faithless servant. Uh, Look at verses 18 through 20 of Isaiah chapter 42, just after this servant's song. Here the Lord says, uh, Hear, you deaf, H-E-A-R, hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is as blind as my dedicated one, or as blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Israel could not be, as Isaiah said in verse 6, that covenant for the peoples or a light for the nations. Israel could not open the eyes of those that are blind, spiritually blind, nor could they bring those um, prisoners out of the dungeons because they themselves were prisoners. They were spiritually blind, captive by their own sin. They could not finally and ultimately be the servant of the Lord whom Isaiah prophesied. These servant songs must point to somebody greater than Israel. And so Isaiah scholars look elsewhere and bring many theories in as to who the servant of the Lord is. Uh, Some scholars point to super-holy, theologically conservative, religiously orthodox remnants of of the true worshipers of the Lord. They are the servants of the Lord. And those those select individuals were to be a light not only to the nations but to the rest of Israel, to bring the rest of Israel back to the Lord. And yes, there, there is some truth in that, right? Each person is to shine a light, to be a light to shine, right? Jesus mentioned as much in his Sermon on the Mount. But yet, as we continue to study these servant songs, uh, more and more information about the servant will be shared with us, will be made known. And we're going to hear about the servant doing much more than simply being a light, Uh, For example, in the fourth servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant is talked about as bearing the sins of many. And how could Israel, uh, even that that super holy, theologically conservative, religiously orthodox remnant of true worshipers, bear the sins of others when they have their own sins to deal with? And and so some begin to look to uh, even pagan kings to find the identity of the servant of the Lord. Kings such as King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon or, or King Cyrus of Persia, both of these men are actually in Scripture highly spoken of by the Lord at certain points. In the book of Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar is actually called my servant by the Lord. And Cyrus, who would later on deliver the Israelites from the Babylonian captivity that started under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Cyrus was called the Lord's anointed. And both of these men were pagans who, while having some intense personal encounters with the Lord and his servants and his people, never believe in the Lord alone as God. And besides, these these men were sinners themselves. They could, again, never bear the sins of many. 
And so we are left looking for the identity of the servant in really the only place that we can look for the identity of the servant. And it shouldn't come as much of a surprise to us. Who is the servant of the Lord Jesus, right? The, the, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. He is the servant of the Lord. These servant songs point finally and ultimately to the promised one of God, promised immediately after Adam and Eve's fall into sin. This servant would crush the head of the serpent, of, of Satan, and would usher in the kingdom of God. And this truth, the reality that Jesus is and was and forever will be the servant of the Lord, uh, whom Isaiah prophesied, wasn't lost on the writers of the New Testament. In our epistle reading from Acts earlier this morning, Peter called Jesus the servant of the Lord. And I would wager to guess that as he did, he had the servant songs from Isaiah going through his mind. And in Matthew, who was also one of Jesus' disciples, when he wrote his gospel, uh, Matthew actually took these verses here from Isaiah 42 and, and applied them directly to Jesus. You can go read about that in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 and following. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. And so as we look at this first servant song, there are two unique things that are, that are going on. And the first one of those is that the Lord is commissioning his servant for an appointed task. And when we think of commission, we usually think of, of one or of two things, right? Uh, we think of that additional payment that you get for making a sale to a client, right? Or, or we think of it in terms of, of ships and the Navy. Uh, to commission a ship is to place it in active service for the defense of our country. Uh, just this week, actually, the U.S. Navy will be commissioning a new ship. The USS Daniel Inoue is a guided missile destroyer, and she's named after the late World War II veteran and U.S. Senator from Hawaii. She'll be commissioned on Wednesday, December 8, 2021, at Pearl Harbor, the day after Pearl Harbor Day. Kind of neat. And although she was launched back in October of 2019, she will be officially installed, officially commissioned, officially put into service in the U.S. Navy this week. Speeches will be given. Her colors will be raised. Uh, the ship's sponsor, usually a female, gives the order, man our ship and bring her to life. And then the crew responds by saying, aye, aye, ma'am. And then they, they run, each man to the ship as they man the ships, uh, singing anchors away and as that's playing in the background. <laughs> nobody, nobody does uh, tradition and pomp and circumstances like the U.S. Armed Forces. <laughs> uh, but with that, the, the ship is officially commissioned, officially put into service. And in these opening verses of Isaiah, in the servant song in Isaiah chapter 42, the Lord commissions his servant, uh, putting him, if you will, into active service. And the first verse of this chapter tells of the servant's designation. Look again at verse 1. Behold, I, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The USS Daniel Inoue is designated with the, with the number 118. When you see that number on the side of a guided missile destroyer, you can easily identify which ship she is. She has a designated number on her. The servant of the Lord is designated as well. 
And so how is this servant of the Lord designated? What sets him apart? The servant of the Lord has been called the chosen one, right? Chosen. This means that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was the plan of God from before the beginning. The servant of the Lord Jesus has also been filled with the Spirit. You catch that in verse 1? Jesus would not accomplish this mission alone. He had the full support and the uh, power of the Father behind him. And it's kind of a neat picture here of the Trinity, the triune God at work. The Father pouring his Spirit on his Son. Where else in Scripture do we see that? We see it in Jesus' baptism, don't we? There, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove landing on Jesus, filling him with the Spirit, designating Jesus, setting him apart for the tasks, commissioning him to go forth. And so as here in Isaiah 42, the Lord commissions his servant, the Lord also assigns certain tasks Uh, to accomplish while he serves him. Just as ships in the U.S. Navy have have the tasks of defending and protecting the United States and those those tasks are done in in various ways, the servant of the Lord has various tasks described for him as well. And in this first servant song, the Lord mentions the servant's task three different times. Did you catch that? Three different times it says that the servant of the Lord will bring forth or will establish justice. Justice has been one of those buzzwords in the news and in society lately, hasn't it? Social justice, reproductive justice, climate justice, economic justice. Uh, It seems like almost every hot button issue lately has been saddled with the concept of justice. But none of these ideas really connect to true, pure, biblical justice and the scripture's definition of justice. The basic meaning of of the word justice is familiar to us, right? It's a legal word often used in the context of a court setting, right? Deciding of right and wrong, of guilt or innocence, right? Justice, biblical justice, therefore, refers, however, not to man-made laws, but to the laws of the Lord, to the transcendent moral law that he has written on our hearts. In Scripture, the word justice is often used as a synonym for righteousness. Those words are, are used interchangeably. To be righteous is to order our lives according to his law, according to his word. And we do this first and foremost by personally being in a right relationship with him through his son, his servant, Jesus. And we live in the light of his blood shed for us on the cross that brings us into a right relationship. His perfect righteousness then is is transferred to those of us who believe. And then throughout our lives, the Lord is continually conforming us day by day, hour by hour, uh, trial by trial even, into his image. And we read in his word how we are to order our lives and, and we go about doing justice and righteousness and he continually shapes and molds us into his image. And laws like the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule uh, form the basics, cover much ground that describes how we as Christians ought to live our lives. Justice, true biblical justice, flows from those laws. 
as we treat others the way that they would like to be treated. Justice demands that we be fair and equitable in all of our dealings, not showing favoritism one way or another. Justice, justice means that we seek to punish wrongdoing while seeking retribution for, for actual wrongs that are done. And now on this side of eternity, we will never have true, full justice, will we? No. And we know that. And we know that we, as well as all humanity, are still plagued with, with sin and that that sin has a negative effect on justice. But it's no excuse not to try to bring about justice uh, the, uh, the way the servant wants us to and to bring that justice that he came to establish. So how, how will this servant establish justice? What will his approach be? The Messiah could have come, right? The Messiah could have come in power and in strength and in might, forcing every heart to, to bow to him, to bend to his will, forcing justice to be done. But listen again to the servant's approach. Verses 2 and the first part of verse 3. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. These verses convey the meekness and the humility that will permeate the character of the servant. And as we read the gospel accounts of Jesus, we find that he fulfilled these verses perfectly, didn't he? He had compassion on the lost, patiently working with people. He, he healed the sick. He made the lame to walk. He opened the eyes of the blind. He cleansed the lepers. The servant did not come as a conquering king looking to overthrow the government. Um, he, he did not come as a revolutionary demanding change through riots and mob action. He came humbly, born of a virgin, laid in a manger, worshipped by shepherds. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He came preaching and teaching a message of repentance to God and faith in himself. The servant of the Lord is meek and humble. So how will this work for the servant? Uh, will this meek, humble approach work? Verse 4 tells us of the servant's success. Look again at that. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. How easy is it for us to get discouraged in a project? One setback, one delay can, can derail us. We get frustrated and we give up easy. But the servant of the Lord, he won't get frustrated. He won't become discouraged. He's never going to give up or, or punt on his assigned tasks. But he will, with perseverance, he will accomplish his task. And this, the, the establishment of justice, what was inaugurated, was began at Christ's first advent, his first coming. And then that will be completely fulfilled at his second advent, at his second coming uh, later on when he, when he establishes eternal kingdom. Yes, the servant of the Lord will have success. The Lord has just commissioned his servant in these verses into active duty. And then in the second half of, of this first servant song, the Lord now gives to his servant some standing orders. In verses 5 through 9, we see the Lord's command to his servant. Listen to these words again, thinking of a, of a commanding officer issuing new orders. 
Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you into righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I love how the Lord describes himself as he, as he commissions his servant and gives him some, some standing orders. The Lord is the creator of all, spreading out the earth and everything in it, sustaining us daily with all that we need. I am the Lord, he says. Not that, not that the servant himself will need this reminder. The servant knows well his master, but those whom the servant serves you and I, right, we are in need of this reminder. Life happens and we get distracted. Our minds lose focus and our attention is, is diverted from the Lord and who he is. We get bogged down with the burdens and the pressures and the struggles of this life. We look inwardly inside of ourselves and see our sin and our failure and we begin to despair. And that's why the Lord gives us this wonderful reminder of who he is. He is the creator of the universe. He is the one who gives breath and life to all. He reminds us that there is nothing too difficult for him to handle. No situation that flusters him. No problem or sin that he cannot deal with. I am the Lord, he says. And so he invites us, his children, to come to him with our burdens and with our troubles. He bears them. He cares for them. Nothing is too difficult for our God to handle. Amen? Amen. So the first command of the, of the Lord to his servant is that the servant is to be our covenant and our light. In the second half of verse 6, the Lord says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. A covenant is a promise, right? It's, a, it's an agreement between two parties, oftentimes a, a legal agreement signed by both parties and, and witnessed by others who can attest to it and say, yeah, this is what happened and this is what went on. They can, they can attest to the authenticity of that agreement. And in calling uh, his servant a covenant, the Lord is telling us that his servant will be, as the author uh, Gary Smith says, the personification or the embodiment of the covenant. The servant becomes the vehicle through whom the peoples of the earth will establish a covenant relationship with God. How do we have a relationship with God? How do we get to know God the Father better? How do we get to know the creator and the sustainer of life? We get to know God through his son, through Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. The word became flesh. He himself is our new covenant. And in fact, Jesus himself says as much. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, he shares a last supper with his disciples. And at part of that meal, he institutes what we call holy communion. 
He took bread, right, and he broke it, and he said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. And then he took a cup, and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant is found in the blood of the servant of the Lord. He is the embodiment of the covenant. And he's also a light for the nations. Light illuminates, doesn't it? Right? You light a match in a dark room and it shines to every corner, illuminating the darkness around it. The servant of the Lord is the light for the nations, illuminating the spiritual darkness of our hearts. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. One command that the Lord gives his newly commissioned servant is to be that covenant and that light. And the second command that the Lord gives his servant is to free us from our captivity. Look again at verse 7. He says, To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons those who sit in darkness. What are we captive to? What dungeon and prison is all, is all of humanity trapped in? We're trapped in our sin, right? I hope that's what you said in your hearts. And if you did, you're correct. Our sin has held us captive. Isaiah, and as Isaiah prophesied these servant songs, Israel was, was battling, constantly battling uh, the sin of idolatry. Idolatry, I'm sorry. They continually broke the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before the Lord. And, and they were trapped in this, this cycle, this spiral of idolatry, following the gods of the nations around them, making idols of wood and stone, of gold and silver, and worshiping these gods. That is why the Lord reminded them in verse 8, I am the Lord. Basically, I am the I am that I am. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Idols had held Israel captive. And your sin holds you captive as well. You might not be bowing down to gods of wood and stone or or gold and silver, but there are plenty of other things that have become your idols, substitutes for the Lord your God. In the large catechism, Martin Luther wrote, whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that truly is your God. Many have set their hearts and put their trust in the government, right? And maybe if not in this administration, maybe in the previous one. Many, many have set their hearts and put their trust in their own accomplishments, what they have done. They they look at at themselves as God's gift to humanity. They have become their own idols. Many have set their hearts and their their trust in money, dedicating their time and, and energy to earning as much as they can, thinking that will solve all of their problems. Our, our cell phones and the, the apps and the social media gateways have become idols for us, I think, in, in 2021. We, we seek their approval, longing, uh, longing for those notifications to pop up. We find our identity and our importance and the number of likes our posts have gotten or, or how viral we can become. Hmm. But the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord has come 
to set us free from those dungeons, from those prisons of sin. He came, born as a baby, to give his life in exchange for yours. He came to die, shedding his blood on the cross for you, dying in your place and on your behalf, that you might be freed from the dungeons and the prisons of sin. And that's the reality that we are celebrating this Advent season. We look back on the first coming of our Savior King, King Jesus, and we look forward to his eventual return when he will finally and ultimately crush sin and death and the devil forever. Amen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Thank you for giving the prophet Isaiah uh, hundreds of years before you sent your servant. Thank you for giving him visions and prophecies of what the servant will look like. And thank you that we have your word and can look back through your word and, and see how your son, how Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled all of these things for us. Thank you, Father, that you sent him uh, to be born, not just to, to live a good life and to show us how to be a great moral teacher, but to die for our sins. Thank you that you love us and that you have given him for us. And help us this Advent season uh, to turn our hearts and our minds uh, to him. And, oh Lord, we look forward to when you send him again to make all things right. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.